from KHOL, this is Jackson Unpacked. Our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm news director, Tyler Pratt. On today's show, Wyoming is revising areas of protection for near-threatened birds that call Teton County home in hopes the feds will adopt the plan. Federal government, stay out of it. Let the state continue to manage the sage-grouse. And later, we talked to the photographer who is helping bring attention and resources to black cowboys and cowgirls across the Mountain West. You know, the black rodeo came about because black competitors couldn't compete at white rodeos. And so they started to have their own events so they could show off what they could do and make a little bit of money. These stories and more are coming up on Jackson Unpacked. Thanks for joining us today. Over 30 immigrants recently became citizens during an annual ceremony in the Tetons. Almost half are from Mexico and many others are Eastern Europeans. And it's part of an initiative to connect new citizens to national parks throughout the country. Cage Wells, Anna Mersbach has more. Every immigrant comes to America from different circumstances. President Joe Biden welcomes the group of immigrants to the United States in a video message. Courage, the courage it takes to sacrifice About 150 people, including family and friends of the new citizens, are gathered on a rainy day at a visitor center in the National Park. In a few minutes, these parks are going to be yours. And I don't want you to let anyone tell you otherwise. That's Grand Teton Deputy Superintendent Gopal Nujabail. His father immigrated from India. Just like you, right? My father had the courage, the resilience, and he took sacrifices to make this dream come true, to do what he needed to do to make a life for his family. And that's why I'm here today. Today's group moved to the Mountain West from places such as Peru, Finland, and New Zealand. But the majority of the group is from Mexico and Eastern Europe. Serena Juganaro, who's sitting in the front row, is one of two Romanians becoming citizens today. It's been so intense, it's such a long process. Juganaro first came to Jackson eight years ago for a summer job. She decided to stay when she met her husband and has been working to become a citizen for the past three years. Juganaro and the others hold up their right hands as they recite the Oath of Allegiance. That I will support and defend the Constitution. That I will support and defend the Constitution. And the laws of the United States of America. And the laws of the United States of America. And with that, the group becomes citizens. Juganaro tears up. She says this means new opportunities for a career, like getting a master's in law, and for her family. Her four-year-old son, Junior, sits on her lap during the closing remarks. I just wanted to have him close to me today. It's just such an important day. I want him, I want him close to me. Sitting next to Juganaro is Efren Hernandez, who also just became a citizen. He works in construction and has lived in Jackson for nearly 30 years but his family just moved here from Mexico two years ago. He says he's happy and excited. Give you more opportunities for my family. Marcela Badillo from Mexico also just became a citizen. She stands up and gets behind the podium to address the crowd. And I want to take this country because uh, it's given me a lot. This opportunity is not really easy to get and I'm so proud of what I've been dealing with to be here. I'm thankful with uh, my family. A few more citizens take the stage to give their thanks 
And then local student Della Zazara closes the ceremony singing America the Beautiful. America, America. Hannah Mersbach, KH12 News. Wyoming is talking about sage grouse again. The federal government wants to expand their protection range, and the state is skeptical about that plan. Wyoming Public Radio's Caitlin Tan went to a meeting where state officials and locals put their heads together about it. Male sage grouse perform a mating ritual near Hudson, Wyoming. Every spring, they strut around and pop their chests to create the unique sound, which they only do on what they consider sacred ground. Researchers with the University of California, Davis, collected the audio back in 2008. These sacred grounds are mating grounds and are called leks. There are over a thousand in Wyoming. Once a group of sage grouse picks a lek, they'll return time and time again. Because that's what they know. Linda Baker is with the Upper Green River Alliance, a conservation group. And that's where they feel comfortable and that's where they find what they need to, to have a healthy, happy life. But once the leks are disturbed, sage grouse won't usually return. They're not very adaptable. And big, wide-open sagebrush landscapes are popular for ranching, energy development, even the occasional wildfire. And because of that disturbance, the bird might not breed. Once it's gone, it's gone. Which is where we find ourselves today. Best estimates show sage-grouse populations have declined by 80% since the 1960s, putting the current-day population under half a million. The bird isn't listed as an endangered species. Instead, Wyoming stepped up and figured out their own conservation methods, and that kept them from getting listed. If they had gotten listed, it would have changed how we use our sagebrush landscape across the West. So Wyoming brought a group of people together who didn't agree on much and hammered out a way to protect the leks and also the energy economy. The basis of their plan was the core area. Land listed as core means it's critical to the bird's livelihood, so development is limited. The trouble is, population numbers are still dwindling, so more updates are being proposed. Recently, a few dozen Pinedale residents gathered to hear about the state's new sage-grouse map. The area is a mecca for both sage-grouse and natural gas development. Appreciate the chance to come up and visit with folks. Uh, Bob Budd is with the state and has spent years working on these negotiations. This time, Wyoming is proposing to add on to the already 15 million acres of protected area. Bud says they're doing this because the Bureau of Land Management is also updating its sage-grouse conservation strategy. It is a very severe plan compared to what we're going to talk about today. Bud says the hope is that once again, the BLM will adopt Wyoming's revisions instead. Their mapping is based on models, based on a whole lot of conjecture, whereas what we're going to show you today is based on actual data, actual birds, actual numbers. Angie Bruce represented the Wyoming Game and Fish at the meeting. She shows the details of the new map. You can see that the pink, I think pink or red, as you're seeing that, those are the proposed additions to the core area. It looks like little blobs of land tacked onto the already existing protected areas. We're not trying to protect every single acre that they use throughout their entire life cycle. If we did that, a lot of the state would be covered. 
Once land is deemed core, only 5% of that area can be developed. There are also restrictions on land use during the grouse's breeding season. It can limit things like energy development. Randall Luthi is the energy advisor to Wyoming's Governor Mark Gordon. He feels both the bird and development can coexist if managed right. Federal government, stay out of it. Let the state continue to manage the sage grouse. Some people in the audience, including energy representatives and private property owners, were frustrated about the new map. They feel like current protections go far enough. But Dylan Bayer, a local Pinedale resident, points out that he doesn't think it's working. Otherwise, populations wouldn't keep dropping. A lot of those leks are just disappearing. So um, as we go with that, I think landowners and industry have a good chance right now to step up and say we want the core areas to expand. And others feel like even more land needs to be added than what Wyoming is proposing. People like Linda Baker say the sage-grouse are a keystone species. If we're taking care of the annual cycle of sage-grouse year-round, then we're also protecting habitats for mule deer and pronghorn. Ultimately, the decision is up to the BLM. But if Wyoming can negotiate a compromise like it did a few years back, it might have a say in how sage-grouse are managed going forward. The federal plan will likely be released by the end of the year. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caitlin Tan in Pinedale. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked on KHOL. Ivan McClellan is a Portland-based photographer who documents black cowboys in the American West. He's gained national recognition for his series, Eight Seconds. That's the time a cowboy or cowgirl aims to ride a bull. A new exhibit in the Center for the Arts features his photography. KHOL's Emily Cohen recently spoke with McClellan and discussed how he got started documenting cowboys and the rodeo. I was taking street photos in Portland, so I would like get off from work and I would just walk around and, and meet people and, and take their portrait wherever it was, whatever the weather conditions were, whatever was in the background, I would just take pictures of people and that got me really good at, at getting a beautiful photo in any any circumstance and it really got me really good at not being shy and just like interacting with anybody that I thought was interesting. And it was right around that time of doing that for a few years that I I, I ran into a, a guy named Charles Perry and he was a filmmaker and he told me he was working on a film about black cowboys. I said, oh, like a Western. He said, no, like a documentary. I kind of laughed at him because I thought I knew a thing or two about cowboys. I'd grown up in Kansas City. I would watch Bonanza and Gunsmoke reruns on TV. We would go to the American Royal, big rodeo in Kansas City, and we would sing the national anthem there. Everybody was white besides the choir. The only black cowboys that I knew about were Cowboy Curtis on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Lawrence Fishburne played him. And then Sheriff Bart in Blazing Saddles. So I thought a black cowboy is like a joke. So I kept talking to Charles and... He said, well, come with me to a rodeo in Oklahoma this summer. And uh, I went and and I was just blown away by what I saw there. Are you seeing black cowboys throughout the West or is it mostly concentrated in certain areas? You know, there are some black cowboys in, in Wyoming. There's a guy who ran for governor. Uh, there are some black cowboys in, in just about every state. But the large concentration of where you're going to see a lot of black cowboys are in Oklahoma and Texas. And the ones that are further out west, in the true west, aren't particularly trying to be found for the most part. What are you shooting on? I shoot on a medium format Fuji camera. 
it's the exact wrong camera to shoot a rodeo with. It's slow, it's clunky, but it, when it, when it does get in focus, it's you get the most beautiful photos. I'll be in the in the press area at a rodeo, and everybody else will have a big long white Canon lens, and they're just like putting their finger down on the shutter and taking thousands of photos. And I'll leave a rodeo with two hundred photos, most of them completely out of focus, but with ten that that look really good. And your photos have almost a, a vintage quality in the color. Yeah. Is that something that you are doing in the setting as you're taking the photo or that you're you're doing in post-production? It's, it's post-production for the most part. Uh, I kind of break down the color settings completely and, and just like rebuild things from scratch. My day job is for Adobe. And so I work on photo editing software during the day. And so... When I go to edit, I'm like testing out new features, experimental stuff, and really dialing in and getting my photos exactly how I want them. What are you hoping to shed light on in this storytelling? You know, the black rodeo came about because black competitors couldn't compete at white rodeos. And so they started to have their own events so they could show off what they could do and make a little bit of money. Now, you know, the big pro rodeos allow black people to enter. They allow anybody to enter. But their chance of doing really, really well compared to the resources that, that white competitors have are pretty low. You know, they don't have the same sponsorship dollars. They don't have the same legacy and, and of people training them. Um, they don't have access to the same like ranches and resources that a lot of the, the white white competitors have. And so I think the legacy of, of eight seconds in this project at this point is really leveling up a lot of these guys and, and giving them their, those resources that they need to really compete at a high level. And, uh, you know, I've showed up and gotten people sponsorships. I've had them at my own rodeo that I just produced in June. And, and you know, at that rodeo, a typical black rodeo will have five to $15,000 in prize money. Our rodeo had $60,000 in prize money. So we were really trying to level up that community and, and really give back. Well, thanks for coming to Jackson, and thanks for making time today. Yeah, I love it here. I love Wyoming. Any excuse I have to come out here, I'll take it. Photographer Ivan McClellan discussing his series, Eight Seconds, documenting black cowboys in the American West. His work is currently on display in Jackson's Center for the Arts. You're tuned to KHOL. Support for Jackson Unpacked comes from 122 Resource Center, guiding members of our community towards stability and growth by providing financial assistance, food access, emergency resources, financial education, and economic independence. That's what we're here for. More information at 122jh.org. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Jackson Unpacked is generously sponsored by the Snake River Sporting Club. At nearly 1,000 acres, this private western community accesses the Snake River and Bridger Teton National Forest not to mention a golf course, equestrian center, and fully functioning ranch. More information about excursions, amenities, and lifestyle at snakeriversportingclub.com. Thanks for tuning in to KHOL. I'm Tyler Pratt.
Earlier this summer, the College Board sent out advanced placement scores to hundreds of thousands of students across the country. These scores reflected their academic performances back in May and determined whether or not the sleepless nights of studying paid off. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Emily Cecilo brings us this report. In the last few weeks of school, students work hard to prepare for the oncoming advanced placement or AP tests, which decide whether or not they receive college credit for the AP course they took. While preparing for these tests, students often experience high levels of academic stress and additional academic pressure to succeed. Naha Pesarmeli, a ninth grader in Peak to Peak Charter School, just completed her first AP exam. Between students who took AP Human Geo and students who took regular Human Geo, like there was that stark like stress being seen among like the AP students. Because like we did have a teacher who prepared us really well, but at the same time, like Sometimes with these kinds of things, you can never feel prepared enough. And so I think overall, yeah, the grade was very, like, stressed and, like, confused. Despite the stress AP and finals stir up, they act as the finish line to an exhausting year. Naha says her efforts in school usually pay off, but not without putting her mental health on the line. Perfection is never attainable for anyone, no matter, like, how hard you work. And so that, like, unattainability means that people keep working to be perfect, and it's just not possible. So it's like, what are you choosing to pick, like, being perfect and having perfect results or, like, your own mental sanity? The pressure to succeed pushes students to not only give up their time, but also neglect their own well-being, leading to a higher risk of burnout. According to a recent national survey, about 80% of students consider school as somewhat or significant stressor, and 30% of students report extreme stress. Anne Robinson, a therapist from Two Rivers Therapy, states that pressure can come from a lot of different places. It can come from peers. It could come from teachers. It can come from the media that we're consuming. It can come from parents, although... I think that's a smaller percentage than we than we like to think it does. Typically, folks that are feeling a lot of pressure are people that tend to put a lot of pressure on themselves in general. And right now, academic is where that's being focused. Another student who experiences these academic stressors is Josue Hernandez Carrero. He says the pressure comes from his transition to higher education. There's a lot of expectations for you, whether that be like, oh, you need to go to college, you need to go applying for programs, internships, but while you also take like, I don't know, like so many AP classes and also ACT tutoring. So those expectations start to stack up. Josue Hernandez Carrero graduated with the class of 2023 as a first generation student. From his perspective, the academic pressure didn't root from trying to be perfect, but rather trying to set a strong foundation going into college. Although the origin of this academic stress was different, the effect ended up being similar. Just taking care of yourself and just doing self-care, they become less like important to you almost. So at a point, you just start to focusing a lot of, t- of your time in school, and sometimes you don't even notice how much time you're putting into school, just because you're so focused to get like an A. According to a study conducted by the National Bureau of Economic Research, cortisol, the stress level hormone, increases by 15% during high-stakes testing week. In the face of academic pressure and stress, it can be very overwhelming for students to find a healthy school-life balance. Therapist Anne Robinson has found multiple steps to help overcome these challenges in the presence of academic pressure. The first one is like getting realistic about our expectations. 
So what are we, what are we actually doing? What would be a successful outcome? The second one is in encouraging some exploration and experimentation. So we don't have to be the best at everything we try. The third one that I like to share with folks is resourcing yourself well. And then the last two things that I generally recommend for folks is really taking a look at the balance that's happening in our life. So how much time are we spending on our academics versus how much time are we spending on some of our other basic needs? And then the last one is by building a strong support system. Mm -hmm. So for students, this could be family members, friends, teachers, but also engaging with mental health providers can be really helpful. While academic pressure affects students in a lot of different ways, Robinson says to never tie how successful you are as a person to one test, no matter how many times you take it. For KGNU, I'm Emily Cecilio. That story was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico. You're tuned to KHOL. Climbers across Wyoming and the West flock to Lander every year for the International Climbing Festival. But this year's event saw a new clinic, the Fundamentals of Visualization, which focused on mentally visualizing climbing routes rather than depending on sight. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman attended the clinic. Yeah, yeah. If you take two steps over on that same crack system, yep. and then go off of your 11, match hands would be a pretty good move. It's a windy day in July, and Justin Salas is working his way up a textured limestone cliff at Wild Iris, a world-class outdoor climbing destination 24 miles southwest of Lander. Salas intentionally moves up the vertical cliff with grace pulling on grooved pockets in the rock and delicately balancing on small it. edges. And right by your right, your left shin, excuse me, uh, that kind of that crimp you were standing on earlier. Or That's Ty right Vineyard, right. who's on the ground describing the holds above Salas and suggesting his next move. He's needed because Salas is wearing a blindfold. Uh, up, up, up with your right hand there. Yep, uh, up, up, up. Maybe, maybe I've seen it. The climber, left, Salas, is demonstrating how to climb without sight to the okay. clinic attendants. Obviously, whenever you're dealing with something like a visual impairment, you're trying your hardest to have like stability, right? Because we feel around a lot, so finding stable positions is really important. Salas is an expert because he's legally blind. He didn't start climbing until after he started to lose his vision at 14. But that hasn't stopped Salas from becoming a pro climber and six-time paraclimbing national champion and world champion. He's ticked off accomplishments in the climbing world that most climbers can only dream about. Salas sees with what he refers to as donut vision. So I just have peripheral, no central. So I can get around and look like I'm not visually impaired, but if you could imagine when you try and look at something, it disappears. Salas believes that all climbers can benefit from the tools of visualization to help improve their efficiency on the wall. So today, Salas is challenging participants to try. But if you wouldn't mind just like throwing the blindfold yeah. on and... While the blindfolded person climbs, the other practices being the collar. They try their best to describe to the climber what the route looks like before they get on the rock and where to place their hands and feet as they move up the wall. So you're kind of just laying out the roadmap of the easier terrain and then try and identify the crux. For those less familiar with climbing lingo, the crux is the most challenging part of a climb. 
And as you might expect, one of the cruxes of this activity is clear communication. The hope here is that, you know, it's going to be hard if you don't receive the information. So ask questions. If you feel like there's a part of the route that you're not retaining, you know, ask again. Salas shares that he visualizes a black 3D space in his mind, then places a map made of neon squares onto it based on the information he's receiving. And so I imagine like building this like neon root mental map in my mind of the root. Yeah, grids basically, exactly. And then I try and retain that. So by the time I'm going to get on the wall, I have a pretty good understanding of what I'm going to be doing. The process is also a metaphor in getting to know what works for someone else. The more the caller understands the climber's personal style and strengths, the more the climber can find a flow that feels good to them. If you are able to, you know, ask each other like, well, you know, do you like high feet more? Do you like staying stretched out? Do you like, you know, are you really flexible? Like, what are your strong suits and all these things? That stuff all helps a lot. Salas says his connection with his competition caller has been fine-tuned over years of getting to know each other. But still, Salas says it's all a balancing act. If someone's relaying information to you, it's all great, but you also have to like split your mind and yeah. like flow process in climbing, it. but also process the information they're giving you. Salas is now 30, and he says the 16 years of living with vision loss has been a continual learning process. When you're dealing with a visual impairment, just like living life and being brave is the most important way to go about it. And then you just like compensate uh, as you learn. It feels like this is a, neat, a nice little ledge for feet. Yeah. So how, how can I best get my feet up to here? Eric Schwinghammer is scrambling up the rock blindfolded. He has ankylosin spondylitis and has spent the last five years battling inflammation in one of his eyes. Since they offer clinics, I thought I'd check out the roster. And, and when I saw this one, it sparked my interest due to my vision impairment. Schwinghammer lives in Bozeman and has been traveling around to different climbing festivals with his fiance. He wasn't sure what to expect from the clinic, since both climbing and climbing visually impaired are relatively new to him. I learned that vision can be an interesting thing to omit in the skill of climbing. See, I learned that it's hard, but it's possible to do this. It just takes communication and like a will from the climber and the, the caller as well. While many might think a sport like climbing depends on sight, it turns out that climbing higher is possible with some good communication and just a little help from a friend. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Hannah Haberman. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Tyler Pratt, and this is KHOL Jackson.